1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually, actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my for, in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So, as I said, just place yourself in that congregation and imagine hearing this. Imagine if you are a person who has been extremely bothered by what you have seen in this probably a prominent person within the church and everybody knows that this is going on and nobody has the guts to speak out and this person in tolerating this this sin that sin is given sort of a, a, a nice lump of dough to spread itself in and to infect and that leaven will ultimately affect the whole church. So there's a sense of urgency here in this rebuke. So the first thing we notice is point number one here, that immorality within the church is reported. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not not even tolerated among pagans. Now, when we see the word sexual immorality, you might have an older translation that says fornication, which is actually closer to the word that is there. The word is porneia, from which we get our word pornography, and it refers to any uh, inappropriate sexual act uh, where that is not fulfilled within the godly and holy parameters of marriage. So... This kind of immorality is of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. You could go to the Corinthian temple and ask them, you know, you you try to to ask them or talk to them about this matter of a specific kind of incest, a a son with his his stepmother, and, and they would shame you, they would shun you. It's it's just 
too out there to even talk about. And yet this is going on within the church. And he says, and you're arrogant. Now remember we spent some time last week discussing the phrase puffed up. You are puffed up. This is exactly the same Greek word. The translators just chose to put arrogant instead of puffed up. You are full of pride. You are so puffed up with your your own self-righteousness and your smugness under the teaching of the leader of your choice that you have somehow managed to separate doctrine from its implications on life. Well, we have Apollos' teaching. We have Paul's teaching. And probably, if they were justifying this on the basis of teaching, they would take a twisted view of their teacher. Now, when Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, he anticipates an objection. After explaining the gospel of grace in Romans chapter 5, in chapter 6, he anticipates an objection and says, Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? If it's all grace, why not just take advantage of that grace? And the more we sin, the more we magnify grace. A a very, very selfish, very carnal reaction to truth. And sometimes you see this when people discover grace and they come out of a legalistic background. Sometimes they slingshot into thinking that everything is permissible. Well, in the eyes of the world, everything is permissible But in the eyes of the cross, all things are not beneficial. And we want to do things which are beneficial to the body and which bring glory to God. So he's saying, you're you're puffed up. You're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Well, in the last chapter, as we looked at the end of it there, it says... It talks about their being puffed up. You have all you want. You become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. So they're very confident, very secure, very smug in where they have arrived spiritually. But this smugness has blinded them to what is going on right under their nose. It's very likely that the person who is doing this thing was a significant financial contributor to the church, or maybe someone who was part of a a well-known family within the community, there was probably a reason why this person was considered untouchable. And you know what? People do this with their leaders. They make excuses, they make allowances, they cover up. It's been in the news, you've seen different uh, evangelists and so on, where Ultimately, their sin has has come out, but there has been this elaborate scheme of covering up, uh, and maybe maybe there has been some internal discipline, but that sin has really never been exposed. And Paul is saying, you can't do that. You can't tolerate that kind of wickedness among you. Jesus has similar words. For the church in Thyatira, listen to this. I know your works, your love and your faith and service, 
and patient endurance that your latter works exceed the first. So they're, they're working hard. They're doing what they ought to be doing as a church. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now you'll notice a parallel there. This man who has sinned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in the Corinthian church, he is being given time to repent. During that time, he is given over, he is handed over to Satan for the goal that his flesh will be destroyed so that he will come to terms with the wickedness of what he's doing, even if it kills him, but so, so that his soul will be saved. If he's a true believer, that conviction and that discipline of God will have its work. The same way that God allowed Job to be tested by Satan, he allowed Job uh, allowed Satan to destroy his flesh. He allowed him to take away all of his possessions and in the end you have Job who was a righteous man. You have Job repenting in dust and ashes because he didn't recognize the sovereignty of God and he was trying to question God rather than submitting him to the Lordship. So God allows this to happen, but the goal is that he restore. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. So there's this report. And by the way, this is not gossip. It's not that there's a rumor going around the church that you know there might be something going on over at Elder Hank's house. There's nothing like that. It was something that everyone knew and no one wanted to confront. So this report, it is brought to him by credible witnesses. We're not sure. It might have been the household of Chloe or it might be some of the other people that he mentioned. But this is a credible report and it is established that this is actually what is going on. Okay, It's not hearsay. So because of this, because the immorality in the church that is being reported, intervention by the church is required. Paul is very blunt here. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Don't beat around the bush. Don't waste any time. There's an infection here. If you don't get that infection out, it will be devastating for the church. You know, we spoke of Rhonda's brother-in-law having his leg amputated. Her brother, pardon me, Rhonda's brother having his leg amputated. If they hadn't amputated that leg that gangrene would have spread to his entire body and it would have killed him. So this is a serious thing Paul is talking about. You can't let this continue. It will corrupt the church. And ultimately, anyone who is of the truth will have to leave and that candlestick, as it were, might have to be removed from, from its place in, the, in God's household. So intervention by the church is required. Remove him from among you. And then, there is an instruction as to how this is to be done. And I've entitled this point, that I've, I've stated here that indictment of the offender is prescribed. I say it's prescribed because Paul writes a letter, he's not even there, he hasn't been there, and he says this is what you have to do. He's giving them specific instructions. 
Now, an indictment is a formal accusation initiating a criminal case presented by a grand jury and usually required for felonies and other serious crimes. So the charge has to be very specific. It has to be brought down against, and in this case, there's not only an indictment, but there is a judgment prescribed. It's not in a case where there's a lot of evidence that has to be examined. The evidence is already out there. Now listen to how Paul says to deal with this. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. The facts are self-evident. There is no other course. There is no excuse for what has happened here. There's no way to spiritualize this. There's no way to sanctify this. It is flat out abomination in the eyes of God. So abominable that the law in Deuteronomy 27.20 says, Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Now when you look at sexual sin, and when you look at sins against that take place that violate the bond of marriage, you are also dealing with sins that mar and obscure the primary representation of the relationship between Christ and His church. So a person, a man who has his father's wife, uncovers his father's nakedness. There is a unity that is intended between a man and a wife, and anything that violates that union, anything that comes between or distorts it or perverts it, it mars and it mocks the testimony of the gospel. And if this is happening in the church, think how devastating this is. It says, I'm present with you, as if present, I've already pronounced judgment. When you are, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the, Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now there's some strange language there. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord, well, that's not so hard to understand. We're gathered in His name right now. Okay? And my spirit is present. The Apostle Paul's spirit is present with them. And he later affirms that again. And my spirit is present in verse 4. He says He's with them in spirit. Now this can mean a couple of things. One, he may simply be talking about the unity of the church, the fact that we are all one in Christ and He has given us one Spirit, that we are baptized together as one body into His death. I rather think He is also referring to uh, a unique ability or a unique dispensation or gift that God has given Him to have this knowledge as an apostle. And if it is such, it would be something that is reserved for the apostles. It wouldn't be a continuing thing where we can go and, you know, visit a church over in Regina in the Spirit and, and see what's going on there. But what we do know is that there is a unity of the Spirit. He, he is identifying himself with these brothers and sisters in Christ and said, when you do this, you have my full support and you can, you can proceed as though I am with you because this is something that concerns the body 
I am the, I'm your spiritual father. I brought you the gospel. I'm invested in this community. I am there with you. And it says, with the power of our Lord Jesus. So when the church gathers to confront sin, not only is the spirit of the Apostle Paul with them, but the power of the Lord Jesus is with them. Remember, we as people here, as members of this local church, we are the body of Christ. And we are under the headship of Christ. When we meet to worship, Christ is present and actively in charge of what we're doing. Christ's power is here when we assemble in His name. And He's here when we assemble to worship. He is also here when we assemble for anything that affects the purity and the holiness of His body, of His bride, the church. So, you, so when this happens, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. We'll get to that part in a moment. But I wanted to take you to see how this intersects with what Jesus taught us about church discipline. Because when you put these passages together, you get a really good understanding. And not only that, but as a bonus, you get to take Jesus' teaching about church discipline in its proper context and rather than universally applying it. So in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15, uh, 15 through 20, we read this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that every word may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. By the way, all this has already taken place in the Corinthian church. The evidence is all out there. Okay, It's known to everyone. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if you two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them in mind by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So what do you have here? You have the church gathered in Christ's name, and you have Christ there. You have the power of Christ there with them. The context is church discipline. The context is removing the evil person from among them, letting him be to them as a tax collector and sinner. You know what that means? They're delivering them over to Satan. Now, this does not mean that the church has license to revoke salvation. This means that the church has a responsibility to deal with sin that is evident so that the church is not destroyed by it. So when we make someone as a tax collector and a sinner, or when we deliver him or her over to Satan, we are really removing the safety and the security of of God's covenant people, removing the means of grace, including the Lord's Supper, including the preaching of the Word, including praying together and living together with the saints. 
And we're booting that person out into the kingdom of darkness where Satan can have his way with them. And by the way, Satan wants to have his way with people who belong to God. That's why he was so zealous at attacking Job. He wants to make life miserable. He wants to make them curse God and die. But the beautiful thing is that if people are truly the children of the Lord, the Lord will not lose them. He will allow Satan to go as far as, as far as he allows him to go. But in the end, the Lord will be glorified if that person is a true believer. In the end, Satan will not be able to, to take that person, but that person will turn from their sin and will glorify God. So that's what that giving over is all about. And I want you to notice here that there are two aspects of church discipline, two different entities that are affected by this. One is the individual. Give him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, even if that involves some manner of physical destruction, even if it it brings a person to death's door or death itself. The goal is that repentance is brought about through this. That there is this prodigal son-like revelation that they have squandered the good gifts of their father, that they have squandered grace, and that everything in them wants to return and repent and be restored. I believe that's what is in view here. It is not the only goal of church discipline. Sometimes we, you know, those of us who are very compassionate, we just think, well, God's main goal is that individual will be restored. Well, that is one of God's goals, is that the sinner be brought back. Look at James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is something that God desires. But what He also desires is that His church is a pure and true testimony, that His church is a faithful and true bride, that His church is a body that has integrity, that is not full of disease. So it's not only the individual. Church discipline serves the individual, and it serves the church. It's restorative in both both cases. Well, in order to understand how important that this sinful person, this evil person, has to be removed for the sake of the body and for the sake of himself, Paul provides an illustration, an illustration of purity. He starts out in verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So you, who, anyone who bakes understands that leaven permeates the lump of dough and you can see that lump of dough puffing up and puffing up, getting bigger and bigger and, you know, popping the lid off the Tupperware and, and then spreading over and all of that. And it's quite amazing to watch. Kind of interesting that Paul uses the image of leaven 
where he's talking so much about people being puffed up. And in the context of boasting, in the context of this arrogance, your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Well, of course he's talking about the sin that they've allowed to come in among them. But the reason that they've allowed that sin to come in among them is because they have this false sense of security um, based on their affiliation with a certain leader and they are living carnally. They're, They're blind. They're becoming blind to the holiness that God intends for his body, for his church. So Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Once again, Paul is not saying you are a corrupted apostate church and there is no hope for you. He's saying you are an unleavened lump. You have made contact and you have permitted sin, rampant, gross sin, to take place amongst your midst and before you come become corrupted by it, and before there's devastation happening in this body, you've got to get rid of it. You've got to purge it out. Now, when people bake bread in Bible times, and when they use leaven, it was more like a, the sourdough bread that we know of today. And there would, there would be that, uh, I don't know what you call it, but there's that culture that... You just keep from one lump, from from one loaf. You keep some, and then you use that for the next, and so on. Well, if that culture goes bad, it actually becomes poisonous. And it not only does it taste really bad, but it'll make you sick. So it's really crucial that this be taken out, because the Church of Christ is not a leavened lump. The church of Christ is not puffed up with sin and arrogance. The church of Christ is like unleavened bread. And he makes a connection here with the Passover. It says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. At the Passover, people would eat unleavened bread. The original Passover, they ate the bread unleavened because there was no time for it to rise. But it became part of the practice of the children of Israel, when they celebrated Passover, they would go through their homes and they would uh, they would sweep them and cleanse them thoroughly to make sure there was no trace of leaven. Jesus used the metaphor of leaven to describe the teaching of the, the scribes and Pharisees. Well, what was wrong with their teaching? They had neglected the words of God and put in place the commandments of men. They would preach one thing and practice another. They would tithe mint and dill and cumin or cumin, and they would neglect the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy. They were hypocritical, they were proud, they were arrogant. And so even in their zeal to keep the law, there was a lot of leaven in the practice and in the teaching of the Pharisees. So Paul makes a connection with the Passover. And of course, the Passover was when the blood of the lamb that was slain, that year-old male lamb without blemish was slain. The blood was sprinkled on the doorposts and the lintels of the house, and whoever was in that house was safe. And in that house, they would eat the whole Passover lamb. 
They, and they would eat these unleavened bread, this unleavened bread, and they would eat bitter herbs. Um, I understand that bitter herbs was like horseradish or wasabi or something like that. And that what it would do, it would produce tears as, as it represented their suffering in Egypt. But the whole point of the Passover is that they were going to be delivered out of that oppression and out of that type of sin in Egypt and be brought into the promised land. And this ritual was kept throughout all the generations of Israel to remember what God had done by way of salvation. I think what Paul is saying here is you're, you're getting far afield from the gospel when you allow sin, when you continue in sin that grace may abound. You're making a mockery of not only, okay, let's say that you are representing unleavened bread, but this is, you remember what this unleavened bread is part of. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sin. Or it is a picture of that. It is the shedding of blood so that the wrath of God is turned away. The Father's wrath completely satisfied Jesus. Thank you. That's what they're messing with here by permitting this sin to multiply within their ranks. Well, God's motive in all of this and the Apostles' concern is that the integrity of the church is protected or preserved. Christ cares deeply for His church. We sing the song, Keep me Jesus as the apple of Thine eye, hide me under the shadow of your wings. Thou alone can save me lest I die. Keep me, Jesus, as the apple of thine eye. That language was originally applied to Israel. Israel being the apple of God's eye, at whom he calls his bride. And he calls his, when he's angry at her, he calls her his adulterous bride. And he he goes through a whole divorcement and, and uh, bringing her back to himself as we see in the book of Hosea. But God's concern is that his bride, that his church be pure. And that his church, that his people, whether the Old Testament or the New, is not selling out and becoming an adulterous people not whoring themselves out to the nations around them. So, look at how it's addressed here. I wrote to you my in my letter, a letter which, by the way, we do not have. Um, there was a letter before 1 Corinthians. Not to associate with sexual, sexually immoral people, but he wants to make that clearer. Like, perhaps they thought, well, if we just stay away from the world, and if we just uh, stay away from the temple prostitutes, we're going to be fine. Now he's going to clarify it. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers are idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. Church, that's why you're here. You are here to go out into the world to be salt and light as Jesus commanded. Not to hide the gospel under a bushel but to let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You need to be out there. You need to be aggressively going out into all the world. You need to be doing kind of what this leaven is doing in the church in a bad way. You need to be doing that in a good way and going out into the world with the gospel. But 
inside the church. That's where we have to keep things pure. You can go out in the world and you and on that rescue mission, you know enough not to become contaminated. Out in the world, you know to when you rescue people from the flames, to hate even the garment tainted by the flesh. The lines are clear, but when you start to allow these things within the church, then you, your lives and your health as a church is far more at risk. And so this is where it has to be dealt with. So he, not at all meaning the greedy or swindlers or idolaters in the world, since then you would have to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Now you see a few things there besides sexual immorality. Do we see uh, church discipline taking place often over a greedy person? Or someone who's a reviler, someone who uh, basically goes and he speaks evil against people? Or a swindler, someone who's uh, a little bit on the shady side in his business dealings? This isn't isn't an extensive list. But what is in common with these sins is they are sins that are seen, that are that are public, that you know we can't we can't make a judgment over a sin that's in the heart. That only the Lord can see that. But when things are going on right away, are right in our midst, and we know that they're there, our reaction should be: stay away. Corporately decide that we cannot have fellowship with this person. The whole idea of excommunication would assume that the people who are receiving communion as members of the body of Christ, that within this circle, uh, there is an understanding that these people are living in repentance, they're living in hope of forgiveness, and they're not willfully continuing in sin that grace may abound. And if that's the case, well, what would happen is the church would remove them from their midst, and the central ritual, the central um, ordinance of the church for, for all of its history would be withheld from them. Not that that would cause them to lose their salvation, but it was a, a necessary dis- disciplinary step. So within the body, brothers and sisters, don't even eat with a person who is sitting in a very public way like this. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now that last sentence, purge the evil person from among you, it comes from the Old Testament. It's used quite a few times. And you know what it always means in the Old Testament? Yeah, take them out and stone them. Obviously, Paul is not saying, take them out and stone them. He's saying, give them over to Satan. But I think there is an element of death here. There's an element of death because if you give a person over to Satan, if you treat them as a tax collector and a sinner, you're talking about a heathen. You're talking about a pagan, someone who is outside of Christ. It doesn't mean that you are 
condemning them or saying that they have no place in the kingdom of God. It means by the observed behavior, they are living like an unregenerate person. They cannot have fellowship with the church because the church is composed of people who are regenerate, who are living in newness of life. What Paul is saying here is, send them to the outside. Let them live among the kingdom of darkness. And while they're there, don't call them brother or sister, but you better go to them with the gospel. You better go to them and reiterate to them the sacrifice of Christ for their sins. And you better call them to repentance. Go out and snatch them from the flames. And the way that you do this is with the gospel. You treat them as a tax collector and a sinner. How did Jesus treat tax collectors and sinners? Well, I just, uh, as I thought of that, I just, uh, there's a bit of a contradiction that came up in my mind because Paul said, don't eat with, don't eat with them. And what did Jesus do? He ate with tax collectors and sinners. Um, but it wasn't in the sense of fellowship. Okay? What fellowship does light have with darkness? We'll read about that in the next chapter. So I want to finish on this note of the integrity of the church and Christ's desire for his church just by reading two other passages. It's not using the image of leaven, it's using the image of marriage. So just listen very closely to how important it is to Christ that his church is pure, that his church is a repentant, washed, cleansed, sanctified body. Ephesians 5, 25-27 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water through the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she may be holy and without blemish that is the church that Christ desires and it is the church that Christ is actively engaged in purifying right now so when we obey the instructions of scripture and when we remove a member of the body or we remove a person so that they can come to repentance. We are actually contributing through the washing of water through the word to the bride of Christ, whom he loves dearly. In Revelation 21, verse 2, we read of the meeting between the church, the bride, and her bridegroom. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is why church discipline is important. It's because Christ's purpose in the church is to purchase a people for himself and to purify a people for himself and to present her to himself as a bride without spot or blemish. So we're going to be receiving communion in just a few minutes.
And this passage really ties in very well to communion because it is giving the conditions in which a person would be um, barred from communion. And they're very specific conditions. It's a person who's living in blatant, open, unrepentant sin. That would be the person who is not to receive communion. And to receive communion, even for a person who knows of, who is living in an unrepentant and puffed up way, um, there are consequences that come with that. So I'm just going to read the passage ahead of time, and including the, the warning that Paul gives, and then we will receive communion together. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> but in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place when you come together as a church I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Now of course we've already discussed divisions and how, um, how these are works of the flesh within the church. He says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead of his own meal. Each one goes, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So there is that carnality. There is that selfishness. There is that self-righteousness. And here's another thing they're overlooking. Not only are they overlooking this blatant, gross sin, but they're overlooking their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're exalting themselves, and they're jumping the line to get ahead of others. There's an attitude here that needs to be purged. There's leaven that needs to be removed. For And then he goes on to give the actual um, instructions for communion. And then he continues after that with, with this caution. So, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Um, I missed something here. Yeah, here, in verse uh, 37, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood of the Lord. But a person examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, we've heard this image of the body of Christ as an unleavened lump of dough. Right? There's a connection here. We're the, we're the body. We're the unleavened bread. Uh, we are together in this. There is a connection with it's communion. It's our common union together. That is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Not recognizing the purity of the body. Not recognizing the significance and the solemnness and the am- amazing um, wonder of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sin coming in with a cavalier attitude 
and thinking, I'm just going to keep on sinning. I'm going to push my way to the front of the line. I'm going to be arrogant. Um, I'm going to allow immorality and kind of look the other way. That's eating in an unworthy way. And Paul says there's sickness and even death that can come because of this. But if you judged yourselves, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned. So even in his instructions for communion, Paul is saying, this is for discipline. I'm saying this so you will not be judged. This is God's grace to us in giving us these kind of warnings. Usher, elders, would you please come and we will receive communion.